What's going on? This is Justin, your host here at Embodied. Um, we want to welcome you to the second part of a conversation that we're having with uh, Dr. Brad Christensen, uh, Biola Professor of Sociology. Uh, we get into a lot of great stuff again in this podcast. I would um, suggest going back and listening to episode 14 uh, entitled They Don't See It. Um, if you haven't already, because we cover a lot of stuff and the stuff we cover in this episode won't really make sense if you haven't heard episode 14 so i really encourage you to go back and check that out if you want to follow us on twitter we are at embodiedcast at embodiedcast and then if you want to shoot us an email uh you can just um at embodiedcast at gmail.com we really look forward to hearing your thoughts uh maybe questions even comments concerns um and yeah without further ado let's start the episode If someone's sitting here listening, you know, and they want to, and they're, and they identify as a European American, uh, what, what are some things that you would kind of want to say to them? Yeah, I would just say that, uh, one, you have all kinds of advantages that other people don't have, and you don't even realize that, that you have them. And that Jesus is calling you into a, something really radical, something really exciting, uh, and revolutionary that, um, will change fundamentally who you are and how you relate to the, to the rest of the world and come on that journey because, but that journey is not without pain and not without giving up a lot of the things that the, the comforts and the, the, um, privileges that you, you have right now, you have to be willing to, um, examine those and, and go through a painful process, but, uh, it's all, it's all for the gain. Hmm. Hmm. And, um, what if somebody listening is on the fence white and they're not a Christian, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? I would say, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in one where, uh, one of violence and hatred and division or do you want to live in one where you can actually uh live in harmony with people who are different from you and because you know what that's the cost of racism and and racial inequality for white people is is we're divided from our brothers and sisters then and we're uh hated in in a lot of ways and even though we're privileged we can't relate smoothly on an equal level and that's a cost for us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and that's that's something that we don't um we can't share in the family of humanity when we're we're sort of the favored sons that get get the advantages and so everybody else uh resents us that that's um in some ways that's not a great world to live in so what you have to do is is get away from those people and blank them out and avoid them and avoid conversations that would um be real and authentic and and that's a cost so what yeah what kind of world do you want to live in one where uh you're on top but you're hated and and resented or do you want to live in one where hey we can all share in the in the, in the blessings and the the uh, um, joys of each other's cultures and, and enjoy relationships with one another. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think um, those two ideas are kind of, so like the second thing you just talked about, about like, we're all, there's neither Jew nor Greek, you know, mm. that idea is what yeah. we say. Right. But, but the reality is the first one. Mm. And so 
you know, how do we get from the first to the second, you know, specifically spiritually, you know, yeah. as spiritual beings, how do we get from, you know, positions of domination yeah. um, to, you know, what Paul talks about, like there's neither junior Greek slave or free yeah. man or woman, you know, um, being the reality. Yeah, it's, a, I think it's a lifelong process where you have to be able to join with people uh, with, within your own racial and ethnic group that's willing to take on uh, for, for white people in particular to join with other white people to examine our privilege. Uh, and it, it, it's amazing how, uh, how deep rooted it is. And it's like peeling an onion, you know, you, you think you, you understand it. And then there's a whole other area of privilege that you didn't even know you were exercising and, and dominating over people with and, and, uh, so going on that journey with other white people and then also having people of color uh, be willing to mentor you and, and walk with you in that as well to to um, be able to have those hard conversations and, and to help you understand things that other white people can't help you understand. And uh, so and that's asking a lot of people of color to to be able to to um, walk with someone who doesn't get it and, and then to, to kind of have to uh, hear the the dismissive and, and, um, offensive responses. And, uh, so I'm just thankful to, to people of color in my life who've been willing to, to put up with me and explain things to me, uh, even with my resistance and, uh, tolerate me even when I'm sort of part of, uh, I guess part of the movement for racial equality, but then wanting to be in charge or wanting to control things or wanting you know, to um, have my voice heard in in ways that are outsized in, in terms of my importance. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a messy, hard journey uh, that's really discouraging and, and hard for everybody, I think. But um, that, that our only other option really is is to continue in the world that we have, which is divided and violent and uh, full of hatred. And to me, that's not an option. Yeah, it's not it's not a viable, a tenable option. Yeah. Um, so I actually was in conversation with some friends about this, um, and they asked me a very similar question, like, "What do I do?" You know. Mm. Um, and this goes back to a Chris Crass quote that I really like, where we've talked about this on the podcast, I think, before, um, where he said, "You know, a lot of times the idea of diversity is that we just need to get more brown." faces in the spaces right. uh and we need to get more brown people in leadership and then everything will be okay instead yeah. of eradicating white supremacy within right. the institutions themselves yeah um and to me there's a connection there between this idea that you know my response to kind of realizing inequality exists on a racial level economic level etc cetera, etc cetera, the intersection of all of those mm. is to go and make more black friends you know, mm -hmm. and that's not like a bad impulse right. per se, like you said, but at the same time, you know, brown and black folks aren't, you know, like, unless they're teaching you a, a class that you're paying for, they're right. not your teachers. Right. You know? Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I understand that there's a need for education and for mm -hmm. understanding. Uh, but I, I, I tried to re not reinforce, but kind of articulate the fact that it's actually really important for you to start talking to other white folks right. about this. 
Um, so can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Because I think, you know, the typical, in my experience, evangelical response is, well, let me go sit at the table with the other black kids and just get to know what they're going through. And it's almost like a tourist, you know, kind of coming in and being like, oh, look at these little, look at these little dolls that they make and look at this. And I appreciate this so much. And then they go back to to whiteness and they just continue on perpetuating these structures and these systems that create inequality in the first place and nothing ever changes it, but they are able to feel a kind of satisfaction or, you know, allay some of the guilt that some waking up to some of this stuff brings. So how do you, you know, how do you address that? So I think, uh, you know, despite what I said about sort of being mentored by people of color and having them come along, I think, I think the most, important thing is for white people to get together to examine their own privilege because um a lot we know how we know how the system works even though we're kind of blind to it and so once we have the lens to see all the advantages that we have we can talk about that and uh try to figure out ways to dismantle that uh so i think it's it's a both and uh i don't know i don't think it's a either or but i think yeah, for white people who are further along on the journey of understanding their privilege and and understanding pathways to a more equal society, we have to band together and we have to bring up the next generation to to understand these things. And and uh, but we also need uh, movements, diverse movements, where people in color are in charge of it, because for me, that that's been one of the struggles is that um and so i'll just hit, um back up a little bit i, I started going to a, a multi-ethnic multi-racial church and one of the things that when i first moved here and one of the things that i was really excited about moving to la there's possibility of that and um but one of the things that that experience taught me being five years there is is i love diversity as long as I'm in charge or as long as my culture is being reflected in the things that, that we do. And, um, so it's really important for white people to be in institutions where people of color are leading them. And they're not centered, right? White people aren't centered in the discussion and everything as the norm or the standard or what have you. Because that, I think that's the, the heart of white supremacy is that white people are better at running the world than people of color are. And we're more equipped and, and I, uh, so just a plug for a book that, that, um, I just, I wrote with a, a couple of colleagues, uh, called, uh, growing up in America. I was just about to bring that up. Oh, okay. So good. Yeah. You just great transition. Yeah. But, um, what we found there is that from a very early age, it's a book about teenagers and the racial and ethnic differences in the way that teenagers experience life. And from a very young age, white teenagers are taught to be in charge they're they're taught that their voice matters that you have uh you're expected to make demands of the organizations around you and make demands of people in leadership even as a teenager to challenge your teachers to challenge your youth group leader even to challenge your parents uh and to fight for what you want to do and given a lot of freedom to sort of create their own um path in life uh whereas people of color, uh, it's the opposite. They're taught that, no, you're not more important than this institution. You need to conform, you need to obey um, from family, religious institutions, schools. Um, 
that that's the message that they're getting. So, um, and, and that's really white supremacy is it's uh, white people should be running the show because somehow we're, um, have the ability to do that. And, and it's right that, that we're in charge, but that's really goes unexamined. And even as uh, a 52 year old, I find myself, yeah, expecting to be in charge where, wherever I go and in charge of my own life at least. And I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And, uh, so to be in a situation where you're not in charge and your culture's not being reflected and you're not being given, although because we live in a white supremacist society, white people, even in those diverse settings, tend to be given a big platform. But um, to just go and serve, to go and be led, uh, I think that's one of the, the most important experiences for particularly white males to, to have. Because even in these conversations about, uh, and, and it's organizations that that I've been trying to be involved in and start uh, anti-racist movements. I still have the feeling like I need to be the one that that makes it happen. But to actually uh, just show up at a meeting and sit there and listen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to to follow what the leaders are doing. Uh, that's what a lot of people uh, for a lot of white people. That's that's how they need to um, start thinking and start um, acting to, to be able to understand how how it feels to um, not be in charge, I guess. Yeah, and that's one of the things, too, with the Black Lives Matter movement and mm. um, specifically is that they've decentered whiteness. Yeah. Uh, and they're not, that's not to say they're anti-white. Right. They're just not saying that whiteness has to be at the center of what we do, you right. know? Um, and so, you know, how do you talk to people about that kind of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. that decentering whiteness doesn't mean anti-white pro-black right. doesn't mean anti-white pro right. you know immigrant doesn't mean anti-american you know mm -hmm. pro you know not pro-islam but like you know not hating islam doesn't mean anti-christian right you know how do you how do you begin to have conversations like that with people mm. yeah that's that that's the big question because uh you know, we've taught, we've been taught in America growing up from an early age, at least in my generation, that the goal is to be colorblind and, and to not see color as if that's the goal. Um, as if that's possible. As if that's possible or, or a good thing even, um, but to not even reference race at all, not talk about it, not notice it, not, but then um, at the same time, living in a, racially stratified society where white people are on top and people of color are on the bottom. Uh, yeah. How do you talk about that if you're not talking about race? And so um, I think that needs to be addressed maybe at square one. Look, we can't uh, colorblindness was a way to sort of cover up racial inequality. So um, talking about race and understanding race and taking racial inequality into account and everything we do is, is where we got to start. And that's just a hard conversation for people. People, uh, you know, think, think you're an, anti I, I've been called an anti-white racist, which is really weird. And you know, that, um, was that online? Yeah. And it, it, online and then, yeah. And different comments to stuff that I've written. And, but, um, it just seems bizarre to me. And, and I think that's where the disconnect is. Like with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the, 
so we had a sort of black lives matter event on campus and and it, it wasn't officially you know it wasn't associated with black lives matter but it was a a vigil basically from mike brown and and uh tamir rice and eric garner about uh, a year and a half ago and so some students painted signs like black lives matter uh and they got torn down uh repeatedly uh in the middle of the night the signs kept getting torn down and and we actually met so uh I put my email address out there and said, Hey, the, whoever's tearing down these signs, I, I want to meet with you and just, just find out what, what the deal is, uh, why we've offended you. And so a student actually did. And, and I talked to him and, and he, he basically said that those signs were attacking him as a white person to, and, and he said, um, that, that the sign black lives matter to him. The message he was getting is, we think that you don't think that black lives matter him as an individual and so um yeah how do you start a conversation when when that's how people are receiving that message uh, that uh, that anything uh trying to reduce inequality is an attack on white people uh that's where we are right now in this society and particularly in, and in evangelicalism and so um yeah, I guess the only way to address that is to start talking about that. Like, why are you getting this message that we're attacking you when all we're doing is trying to to protect people's lives? Do you feel like you've had any conversations that have made any headway in that direction? Um, I think it takes so. Usually, most of the conversations I've had is in in teaching teaching classes on it, and so uh, by the end of the semester, you know, it takes a semester, I think, to, to to start to and and even after a semester people a lot of people uh, are still receiving that a lot of white students are still receiving that oh this is an anti-white class but um but it takes a long time it doesn't have it, it it i actually think it's it's a spiritual battle because it's not um it doesn't seem like rationality uh people aren't they don't seem to be able to understand some very simple, reasonable things that anybody should be able to understand. Uh, and there's, there's some, there's something really spiritual and emotional going on. These reactions, the blocks, yeah, the blocks, the, the inability to understand that black lives matter isn't an, an attack on white people. Like that, um, that's, that's just bizarre because like, it seems like any one with, you know, any reasonable, faculty should be able to understand that but uh so where yeah where what it this is my this is my ultimate like where why why mm -hmm. is it so hard um i i've read the work of john a powell who i referenced in a previous podcast i believe depending on when this does end up coming out uh, but he talks about the resistance to justice and to movements and mm -hmm. you know to things like this for white folks Mm -hmm. um, is a result of their fear of existential annihilation, mm. their fear that they will be, if they accept this idea that Black Lives Matter, that they will then be annihilated. Mm. And so there's, I mean, depending on your perception of what whiteness is, if you see it as a legal category created to kind of keep, you know, poor blacks right. and poor whites separate, mm -hmm. Bacon's Rebellion, that whole thing, you know, yeah, that kind of makes sense because... Yeah uh if whiteness as a construct is all about excluding certain types of people uh, as opposed to like a way in which i look and a way in which mm -hmm. i you know 
my skin looks. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like if, if it's more of a social construct designed to perpetuate inequality, then yeah, there is a sense in which it is anti-white. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but like it's anti-inequality. Right. So if whiteness is, you know, a construct designed to reinforce inequality, which some would argue it is, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to not to say that Euro European Europeanness or like the fact that you was a white man, like I don't know, am I getting I'm I'm, yeah. I'm getting mixed no, up in my words sense. here, but yeah. like so there's a sense of which is maybe true, but at mm-hmm. the same time, you know, it's not saying that you as a white man can't be a part of the movement, right? You know, towards yeah. equality and equity and justice. You know, right. what do you think about that? I think fear is, is at the heart of it, like you said. Um, and I think the fear of annihilation is real, but maybe, I don't know about fear of the white race as a whole, but I think personal fears. Uh, am I going to lose my house? Am I, am I going to get killed personally? If I Am I going to uh, lose everything I've got? Uh, that fear is there. And I think, uh, you know, you can't oppress a group of people for hundreds of years. And then I I think there's a fear of the people that you're oppressing because obviously they're, you know, they're going to be angry and they're not going to, um, like what, what you've been doing to them for hundreds of years. And so I think, and this goes way even beyond back before slavery as well. I mean, colonialism that, that Europeans have been, carving up and oppressing the world for you know how many years six 600 years or something like that and um so i think the fear is okay you know we're sitting on top of this pressure cooker and uh and all the the and this may even be a subliminal fear and people might not even be willing to admit this but um if we let the lid off of the pressure cooker, we're going to get consumed by the anger for all that's happened uh, for all these years. And, and, and that's combined with the, the sort of racist images that we've had growing up and for years of scary black people, particularly scary black men, that, yeah, there's a lot of people that are afraid for their lives. And um, uh, which, is, you know, it's all irrational but it's there. So yeah, I think fear, uh, and the fear of losing people losing what they've got personally, I think is, is more of the fear driving it than, uh, fear of the elimination of the white race as a whole. Yeah. And I think that's when I, yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get at. And Mm. I think you hit it. It's not about fear of the white race or like the fear of the annihilation, like the actual, it's like the fear of losing, you know, whatever whiteness, whatever kind of benefits that whiteness provides. Yeah. And I think, but I think there's also an interesting, and this goes back to like, um, the, like the Nat Turner movie coming out that mm-hmm. just was bought for 17.5 yeah. million Nate Parker's film, you know, that brings up a level of, um, of fear, yeah. you know, of physical fear, you yeah. know, That's and it's scare it, some people. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why it's scary is because there's this idea of, if we give them position, if we give them privilege, if we give them resources, mm-hmm. what if they turn around and do the same exact yeah. thing to us that we did to them? Yeah. 
Um, and that's a very valid question. Yeah. You know, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that that fear that's one of the things that's even whether it's conscious or subconscious, I think that's driving yeah, drives a lot of fear. Yeah. Is that something that you have felt as a white person before or in your past or that you've dealt with or worked through or? Um, I, yeah, I've, I've felt, uh, and this, this was sort of before, I think, uh, I really understood racial inequality, uh, even though I was studying it and, but, but I felt at different times I felt like, uh, because I'm white, black people aren't going to like me, uh, or they're angry at me just because I'm white. And, uh, without even knowing the person or, and then, so that puts fear in white people that what if that guy, that person is in charge of me or what if that person's my boss? Um, I'm screwed, but that's how I feel like every day. Exactly. So I'm, I, I feel like I've become, accustomed to that right you know i've been accustomed to kind of winning over the favor of people i assume will hate me at first glance right. you know yeah. and so uh, i'm not arguing with you i'm just saying no, like i i resonate with that yeah. and i'm sure a lot of people of color are like yo yeah. well, well that's like welcome what to it, my world yeah that yeah. yeah and so um yeah yeah and so um but for white people that's a really um, it's not a common uh, experience, particularly for white males. You know, most of the people above you are going to be like you uh, culturally. Uh, they're going to look like you. They're going to think like you. And, and that's a really comfortable position to be in. Because it could be you. Right. In a couple of years. If you just work hard and you just keep your stuff together, you'll get up to the top. Right. Exactly. And it makes it makes you think that you're living in a safe world. Uh, but yeah. And everything's fair. Yeah, and exactly. Just. And and people appreciate me and who I am and they they appreciate the work that I do and and uh but um so yeah, I I think that fear it, because it's something that particularly white male and white females probably feel it too, um uh, just because they they don't um they're usually in institutions where a man is is the one at the top and and probably their immediate supervisor or person that can either make their life really good or make their life difficult. And so I think for white males, uh, it's just a foreign experience now to see people uh, and to have to um, experience what the rest of the world has been experiencing all along. That, hey, there, here's a person who's different from me, who's in charge of me. And uh, this may not go well for me. And so that's where the I'm being oppressed yeah. you know, narrative comes from. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we're not going to solve this in an hour and a half. Yeah. But um, as we kind of move towards closing uh, for the sake of our listeners, <laughs> yeah. um, is there anything, and this is a question not just for you, but that I ask everyone, is there anything in terms of identity and spirituality that you feel uncomfortable talking about? Like, for example, the one I always use is about gender. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also talked about um my Christianity, you know, there's just these things, um, these identities that I do hold because I'm a person of color, but yeah. I do hold these also privileged identities. And so yeah. I'm always kind of like, am I being sexist or am I, yeah. you know, abusing my, my Christian privilege or, you know, and yeah. so I get really uncomfortable mm -hmm. talking in, uh, not uncomfortable, but like, 
I don't get comfortable talking about it, but it doesn't make, I don't feel super like, oh yeah, I got this totally, you know, hundred percent. Right. So yeah. are there things in terms of identity that you're just kind of like, uh, yeah. Uh, well definitely the, you know, I've explored, uh, my white identity and, and my male identity and, and the privilege associated that probably definitely my white identity more than others. Uh, my identity as a heterosexual, I think I haven't, uh, explored much and the privileges that come to, from that. Um, and, and the sort of politics surrounding that right now, but within evangelicalism makes it, uh, a difficult conversation to have. Um, I'm also, uh, exploring being able-bodied as well, uh, temporarily able-bodied as, uh, I'm actually, uh, I'm teaching a class right now, sociology of disabilities, which, you know, part of being uh, privileged is you can get to learn about things by actually teaching a class, which uh, right. actually uh, I learned about race by teaching a class on race, which is crazy when you think about it, that the person that teaching it, it doesn't know anything, at least initially. But that, but not knowing that you don't know something is knowing mm. something. Let me just say that real mm. quick. <laughs> yeah. It's a good start. Yeah. So, so my identity is a temporarily able-bodied heterosexual or, or ones that, that I want to explore. Um, and the, you know, some of the, uh, some of the inequalities and, and oppression that comes out of those things as well. And so, um, when you think about embodied spirituality, what does that mean for you? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, well, just the word embodied, you're doing something with your body. You're not just thinking about it. And I think um, evangelicalism tends to be heavily uh, in the in the head, getting your theology right, thinking about the Bible and what it means, rather than uh, putting your body on the line or uh, doing something with your body uh, to reflect Jesus's love. And uh, so I think, yeah, for me, I, I get the most, uh, I feel the most aligned with God's will and a lot and, and his, his movement. A lot of times when I'm at a protest or when I, when I'm at, and it might not even be a, a Christian group organizing it, but I feel like when you're, you're physically there, uh, and, and you're using your voice, you're using your body, uh, as part of a move towards the kingdom of God, uh, which that that's, for me, that's when I feel the most alive and most uh, connected with God and connected with what Jesus was was up to when he was here. Mm, yeah. And so as you kind of move forward and you bring folks with you, um, what are some things that people can do, you know, to, especially as white folks, yeah. to join this movement? Yeah. Well, the good thing is that... Uh, and because uh, we live the dominant culture, Anglo-American culture in America is very individualistic. When white people hear about injustice and inequality, they think, okay, I got to go somehow. I got to go figure out how to solve this or I got to do this. And then they get overwhelmed and then they discourage and quit. But uh, the kingdom of God is, is alive everywhere. And, and all you have to do is show up and, and join it. And, and I think for white people in particular, the idea of just showing up and following uh, is kind of a, a, ra a radical concept because uh, we're taught, no, you got to go make something happen. You got to start a movement. You got to go 
be an entrepreneur. You gotta, you gotta be the one doing it. No, just show up. Uh, you know, look at uh, Black Lives Matter. What what are they doing in your community? What what's uh, you know, Sojourners and uh, what are uh, World Relief and some of the um, immigration reform movements. Uh, there's a there's a group called Clue Clergy and Lady United for Economic Justice that is awesome at bringing people in, uh, believers in, to movements for justice. And uh, yeah, it's just a matter of showing up, getting connected, and and uh, you don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to figure out how to fix everything. You just need to join and be a part of what God's doing. Yeah, another org that I found other white folks really talking well about or speaking well about is um, Surge, uh, mm -hmm. showing up for racial justice you know yeah. uh i don't know if you're familiar with them no i have actually i've never heard of them yeah yeah so i found about the, i found out about them well, relatively recently so not mm. like a super long time but um basically they're a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice oh, that's great and so they i found out about them through a group called aware la mm. um, which is also an anti-racist uh white organizing group yeah. and so I think these are just some powerful networks, you know, that folks can really, um, if they really are serious about doing this work, you know, yeah. um, they can get involved, you know, and join. I mean, AWARE is doing protests where it's white people for black lives. Oh, that's great. In LA, mm -hmm. like every month, you know, and they're going out and holding these yellow banners and it's very, yeah. you know, it's very obvious that these are white folks showing up for black lives yeah. you know and i think that's just a powerful that's powerful you know yeah. um and it's not saying that they are um out here saying we are the solution right they're out there saying come on white folks let's go like yeah. it's time to wake up it's time to start you know kind of maybe wallowing yeah in guilt and that's i mean i understand that guilt may be something that you're in mm -hmm. for a season but at some point, you know, what do you do with that guilt? And like you said, maybe it's you show up. Yeah. You know, and you just go to a protest. Yeah. And you just take it in. Right. And you walk in the street and you experience what that's like. Yeah. And you tell your friends about it. Mm -hmm. And you do some reading. And you talk to Uncle Bob at dinner, yeah. you know, on Sunday. You know, when he brings something up, you know, yeah. and you push back. Or, like, I feel like those are the types of things that... um aren't talked about enough yeah but that are super valid when it comes to this movement what do you what do you think about that no that's a couple of things one that it, that it's white people uh showing up as a group is really healthy i think that, that it's white people organizing themselves to address to to dismantle white supremacy is uh that's fantastic and and the other thing is uh that you mentioned is um the networking that goes on at these places, just that you meet people um, that then shape how you think. Um, the experience shapes you, but then you also get involved. I, I see the same people when I go to different, different protests, and that that's one of the things that I enjoy the most is seeing those connect, building those connections with yeah, the, the same community. People. Yeah, and uh, I think it's significant that uh, Jesus, when he was uh, starting the kingdom of God here on earth. He showed up and then he he brought together a group of people. He didn't drop a ten point plan. He didn't drop a you know manifesto. He didn't drop a book and say here here's how to do it. 
he started building networks and relationships and um and then that turned into a movement and and that's where that's the way we get transformed is through relationships in, in a movement and then and ultimately that's how structures get changed is that the network gets so big and then the network can has the power to to overturn structures and hmm. institutions yeah yeah so um and that's what's really valuable about connecting uh with organizations with protests with the movement is that um yeah you're expanding this this network that's ultimately and i really do believe that god's behind it so it's ultimately going to change uh the the oppressive systems that we have but it it's just takes a long time but to be part of that's pretty exciting yeah definitely um so where can people find your work can you name off the some of the work the books and you already named one but just kind of refresh us and then yeah so i've written a couple books uh one is about um multiracial multi-ethnic congregations it's called against all odds uh and then i the other book is um growing up in america uh, the power of race and the lives of teens. And, uh, you know, I've written some other academic journal articles that probably aren't as interesting to the listener. Um, not as interesting to me either, but, uh, those, those probably be the main, uh, written sources. And then can people find you on, on the interwebs at all or, uh, Facebook. Uh, and yeah, that's about it. I, that's one of the things that I need to get more savvy with is social media. But, uh, email yeah. at all or yeah uh, email me uh, you can find my email address at biola uh through the biola website and uh or i'm on facebook cool very cool well thank you for coming through this has been i think a very powerful conversation that um i want to continue so yeah. hopefully this isn't the last time we kind of push these and we're in a like you said we're in a very interesting space yeah where the next couple months are going to be yeah. Uh, things are going to get ugly. Yeah. Yeah. This can be pretty important conversations that need to be had. So, mm. yeah. um, I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking more about the election and what it means and what it means for Christians and white Christians specifically yeah. Yeah. to show up for racial justice at this moment in time. Absolutely. So this is right. our moment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much and uh, we'll have you back soon. All right. Thanks. As always, we want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, again, if you want to follow us, follow us on Twitter at, at @embodiedcast. Shoot us an email at embodiedcast at gmail .com. Um, We thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Embodied is produced by Justin Campbell, with production assistance from Carlos Antonio Delgado, Jason Jenkins, Delisa Perry, and Philip Yah Dumfey. So until next time, peace.